Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello and welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben. Hey guys, it's Russell. Today on the show we have Jay Prentice. Jay is a ski tester, writer, photographer, and passionate outdoorsman. After growing up in New York, Jay moved to Western State Colorado University where he spent as much time as possible in the mountains, skiing, climbing, biking, hiking, mountaineering, and kayaking. He does photography for various companies and became a sponsored skier about 15 years ago. Jay has traveled around the world on many different adventures, including one particularly scary one, which he will be sharing with us today. Jay, Russell and I heard a little of this story, and we're glad that you're alive to tell it to us. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Jay, so thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, you've traveled for ski stories, you test skis, you do photo shoots, go on expeditions, and so much more. It seems like you're living the, the skier's dream. So are you doing all of these things full-time? Uh, no, not actually full-time. As a matter of fact, uh, every year I do it less and less. I used to uh, spend quite a bit of time traveling and being on the road. But uh, as I get older, the opportunities are less, and I, I don't do it as much as I used to, which is fine. I, I'm kind of enjoying living somewhat of a normal life these days. You know, something that's kind of come up in the past is, these professional skiers similar to yourself, it's not always enough to kind of just have the sponsorships and the travel budgets. So do you think that it was necessary for you to have your own business to support your life? Absolutely. Uh, There are very, very few people that actually uh, make a full-time year-round living being a professional skier, and especially in the extreme sports. And yeah, definitely always had another job. I mean, there were times where I would travel for months on end, but I would always come home and uh, and have another job to uh, basically be able to survive and live in a ski town and be comfortable. So as Russell alluded to, Jay, you have a lot of different job titles, photographer, skier, writer, but the one that we want to learn about today is ski tester. So what exactly do you do as a ski tester? Well, basically, it's uh, pretty self-explanatory. You uh, you show up, and uh, there's a there's a bunch of different ski manufacturers that have, you know, different types of skis and bindings and boots and all different equipment, and you uh, you basically uh, test it for those companies or for a specific magazine or for a website, and uh, you basically keep notes and uh, turn in all your information, and then they use that information in uh, in magazine or on websites or for their company. Hmm. I see you as a sommelier for skis. Is that a good description? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So when you're testing the ski, do you know what brand the ski is? Yeah, yeah. You usually know what brand it is. You know what make it is. And often the idea is just to compare it to other skis in its same category. So you're basically trying to figure out from a scale of, say, 1 to 10, what the best ski is in that category and and what the worst ski is in that category. Mm. Do you think that you're ever biased based on brand or any ski tester for that matter? Uh, You know, it's hard to say. I would say 
no matter what, you're biased in some way. I don't specifically know if you're biased toward a brand, which which some people may be, but uh, it's almost impossible to be objective about anything when when you're when you're doing something like that. But you know, you do make a a very serious effort to concentrate on the specifics of the ski and its specific purpose, and try to you know rate the ski based on that. So yeah, yeah I would say there's a little subjectivity, but mostly you just try to be objective as you can. Yeah. Yeah. I've gone to one of these events that you were talking about where they have all the different ski companies there. Uh, this past year I was at Copper Mountain when they had the big SIA show. And so I try to jump on as many skis as I can. And I like to think of myself as pretty knowledgeable in the ski industry, but then I get on these different skis and I'm like, can you really uh, tell the well, difference? I don't really know what I'm looking for. Right. Is there some <laughs> sort of standard training that you can take to establish yourself as an expert uh, tester? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think so. No, <laughs> no. I think, uh, I think that, you know, it takes a lot of different types of skiers and a lot of different level of skiers to be a ski tester. Not everybody has to be, you know, an incredible backcountry skier to test backcountry skis and not everybody has to be an incredible skier to test skis in general. Uh, you know, there's certain types of skis that are made for intermediate skiers and, and those need to be tested also by different types of skiers. But I would say, you know, uh, the most important thing is, is to get some basics about skis and to know what category that ski is in and to specifically test the ski for that category, what you think, how it would perform in certain circumstances. Very interesting. So have you read Malcolm Gladwell's book called Blink? No, I have not. So it, it talks a lot about kind of human behavior and the psychology behind people's decision making. And there's one case study in it where he talks about like a whiskey and there's this really established great whiskey company and then they're starting to lose market share to a smaller whiskey company. So they do all this research and it basically comes down to, okay, it's because of the bottle design. It's not because of the way the whiskey tastes or the brand. It's all bottle design. Do you think that sometimes the same thing happens with skis and graphics? Uh, you know, I do actually think that that's the case. Um, we, we sometimes talk about that, you know, the, the ski looks really cool or the ski doesn't look good at all. And you try to um, ignore that fact, but I would imagine, even though you try to ignore it, that mm -hmm. the skis that look the best probably get rated slightly better than skis that don't look good yeah. at all. But, but you know, everybody's got a preference, so maybe the ski I think looks good looks terrible to somebody else, yeah. you know? Well, and the graphics are part of the ski, too. I mean, it's a It fashion. is. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And one other thing I was thinking about is, this is not just easy work. You don't just get to go out and, and take powder runs all day with these different types of skis. I mean, you have to have this technical knowledge and be very disciplined to do the same run over and over again. <laughs> true, yeah. it, it's probably not even that much fun. Why do you enjoy doing it? <laughs> well, you know, it is actually pretty fun. Oh, it is? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, you know, I love to ski, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you maybe not necessarily taking the same run, but you're skiing the same area often. Okay. Um, but being able to be out and uh, test different types of skis and try different things, and just being outside and and being with people that are you know like-minded people that are all having fun, it's it's a great experience. And usually, you know, when you go on these testing trips, you're it's not all about the daytime either. You know, you're having a great time at night. You're hanging out with cool people. It's, it's a, it's a great time really. And it is hard. 
It's definitely hard. Yeah, I bet. I'm hoping someone invites me someday, but I, I don't know what I have to do. You're to... Trying to get an invitation right yeah, now, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know that Jay, you know, he's starting to work his way up. Maybe I can slip my way in there, but I'll probably need to prove myself. Plus, I'm just a telemark skier, so. They do have plenty of tele skis, but uh, yeah, we used to see probably um, 50% telemark skis, 50% alpine skis. Now it's probably more like 80%, you know, alpine yeah, skis. Exactly. And 20% mm-hmm. tele skis. Did you ever do any telemark testing as well, or was it mostly alpine? Uh, you know, I have telemark tested, but um, mainly just for fun uh, on some of the trips. The uh, telemark skiers will alpine for a day, and the alpine skiers will telemark for a day just to mix it up. Yeah, sorry. I had to get into the little telemark uh, tangent. <laughs> and whenever it comes up, I get a little too excited. But um... It's not completely dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I hope not. If not, then I'm keeping my skis forever. Anyways, to kind of move on, we, I mean, we could talk about ski testing for a while. So, so we'll jump into one of your adventures and we know that you've done a ton of different things. There's so many stories we could talk about, but there has been one that stuck out and that's one of your trips to, uh, Juarez, Peru. Is that how you say it? Juarez, yep. Okay. And before you go any further, Russell, let me just cut in here because I want to tell our listeners that the full story for this is going to be online on our website. We really encourage you to check it out. What we're doing today is, I guess, more of a teaser, but the details and what an incredible story, Jay, that will be on our website. Yeah, definitely check out the whole story on our website. So anyways, let's get into the story. You guys were in Horaz. You were going to do some mountaineering and maybe some backpacking. Where did this whole journey start? Well, you know, I think the thing about Peru that's so enticing is there are a lot of mountains close to a town that you can access relatively easily and ski and climb. And, you know, there are very few places in the world where you can get that high really that easily. Not that they're easy mountains to climb, but uh, it's just very accessible. So we we looked into it. it. It's got a great culture, you know, Spanish speaking culture, really interesting country and uh, incredible mountaineering. So that's how we ended up choosing Peru. You arrive there, not really knowing what to expect. You look up, you see this 22,000-foot mountain, and you say, we just have to climb that. Is that pretty much what happened? Not, not exactly. I mean, our, <laughs> our goal was to go there and climb mountains, you know, to start on some of the, the warm-up mountains and then work our way up onto some of the more difficult mountains. So you do your warm-ups, those are all successful, and then you actually get onto the mountain. Did you have everything go the way that you were expecting it to? Uh, No, you know, I mean, uh, in mountaineering, you never really know what to expect. And in this particular case, anything we expected did not happen. So we pretty much had everything go wrong that could go wrong on that trip. But, you know, you sort of expect that that's a possibility when you're going into the mountains. You never know. What kind of things did go wrong? Well, you know, we had some very bad weather. We got caught in a pretty severe storm. We lost visibility. We had a crevasse fall. We had to spend the night in a snow cave on the side of a very avalanche-prone mountain. And to top it all off, we survived all of that, fortunately uh, survived all of that, and uh, had a a very harrowing descent down the mountain, only to come into our base area, basically, and find out that the entire country was on strike. And it was a pretty serious situation between the government and the local farmers, the campesinos in, in Peru. Let's rewind to that night that you had to spend on the mountain because you tell that in a lot of detail in your story and it is chilling, uh, no pun intended, I guess. <laughs> but, I mean, you talk about how you have to dig this this cave and you're sitting in this cave in the middle of the night and all around you you hear avalanches. 
sliding down and Serax falling. That must have been one of the scariest moments of your life. Uh, yeah, I'd say it probably is up there. You know, I've had a few, but that was probably one of the scariest moments of my life. But yeah, as you're, you know, the snow cave that we were able to build was very makeshift, uh, not very big, not in a very safe area, but the visibility was so low, the the likelihood of falling into a crevasse or falling off a cliff was higher. I guess the likelihood of death was higher doing that than we thought building a snow cave and just hoping for the best. So that's what we did. We spent the night in the snow cave. We did have some avalanches come and actually fill up the entrance of our snow cave. Not not huge avalanches, but big enough. And we had to dig ourselves out. And yeah, I'd say scary enough that I was pretty upset to my stomach and didn't sleep very much that night. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, it just sounds kind of like sensory overload. And I'm sure there's a ton of stuff running through your head. Can you talk about what those thoughts were? Well, really, you know, it's funny, it's kind of cliche, but you you pretty much do think about your family mostly in those situations and how selfish a sport like that can it can be. I mean, you're out there trying to test yourself and push yourself and you always think you're going to succeed 100% and you always feel 100% confident going in. But uh, when you get stuck in a situation like that, you really realize how fragile everything is and how unimportant summiting a peak can be sometimes compared to leaving your family behind. Yeah, you you use that word selfish. And when I was reading the story, kind of the situation that you're in almost reminded me of a war zone. And you, you know, you're like hunkered down. And it's very similar, except for one glaring reason. And that's that you put yourself in that position. Are you feeling guilty? Yeah, I guess you do feel a little guilty at that time. I mean, when you're in a bad situation, and you feel like you have a pretty good chance of living through it. You don't necessarily feel guilty. You just, you know, you're surviving. But when you're actually just completely helpless and uh, sitting still and and not really able to do anything, yeah, it gives you a lot of time to reflect. And you do feel a little guilty for putting yourself in that situation and maybe uh, leaving family or girlfriend, wife, whatever behind, you know. Mm -hmm. And I guess going forward after an experience like that, how do you balance that idea of pushing yourself and knowing that that will make you a better person versus avoiding these situations and avoiding that guilt? Well, you know, I think uh, like most mountaineers, it's uh, really important to have a very short memory. So uh, <laughs> when, you, when you get done with something like that, you try to forget. Really, you try to forget about it. But, you know, those, those sort of situations, and that's not the only one I've had, but those sort of situations do stick with you uh, for extended periods of time. And I think... Uh, you know, you learn from every experience and you just hope that uh, the next time you go out, you maybe uh, check the weather a little better. I mean, uh, we didn't really have access to uh, checking the weather. It wasn't as detailed then at that period of time. But, you know, you want to check the weather. You just want to make sure you're as prepared as possible so you can hopefully avoid being put in those situations. Does that make you almost glad that you went through that kind of experience and, and survived it? for all your future experiences, being more prepared, uh, more knowledgeable on the mountain? I'd say um, for me personally, uh, probably both. Yeah, I definitely felt like getting through that as unlikely as it was, was a really good learning experience. And I felt, you know, a lot of confidence coming out of that, that I could survive through a lot. But at the same time, you know, it did take the wind out of my sails a little bit on that particular trip because I was for the first time, even though I'd been in a lot of near-death experiences, I was completely helpless in that situation. And uh, and you feel like you're just sort of leaving it out there. And you realize that when you go on trips like that, there could always be the potential for, you know, 
everything being out of your control. And that's always the way in mountaineering and ski mountaineering. You know, when I first read this story, I thinking, you know, after this experience, you've got to be turned off to this lifestyle. But now it sounds like you're almost addicted to it. And I mean, there are close calls and close calls are good because, you know, it's a warning and potentially a wake up call. But on the flip side, it can almost make you think that you can conquer anything. Are these wake up calls for you or are these building your confidence? You know, uh, I would say it's a combination of both, but I definitely uh, don't feel an addiction toward it. I do feel an addiction towards being outside and needing to uh, clear the head and, and, and get out into the wild and, and do those sort of things. But I'm not necessarily addicted to near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. I can say that. My goal is to avoid, the, avoid those at all costs. <laughs> you know, uh, I do like to put myself out there a little bit, but I definitely... Um, I can definitely say after a handful of those experiences that I prefer to take the bit more cautious route these days than I used to. <laughs> Good to hear. <laughs> yeah. You had this experience on the mountain, then you come down and there's this almost farmer rebellion down there. And, and so it wasn't the end of your suffering. So what else happened there? And then uh, walk us through that journey a little bit. Well, yeah, we came down off the mountain in, uh, in pretty rough shape. Uh, we really weren't able to eat uh, just out of nervousness and and uh, just the situation that we were in. We did a lot of down climbing. We, we were able to get off the mountain, and when, when we got into town, we realized that there wasn't a whole lot going on, and we we couldn't get out of there. We had run out of food at this point, and we could not get out of this small little town, and pretty much everything was boarded up and shut down, and apparently... Uh, there was some kind of strike going on by uh, the local farmers based on the government trying to tax the water coming out of the mountains uh, going into the farmland. So, uh, yeah, we sort of walked into like a mini war zone, basically. Another war zone. Yeah. Another war zone. Exactly. How long were you not really eating meals? Well, I would say we went uh, almost two days without really eating. Wow. wow. And that was out of you being scared and then also not having any real resources around you. You were trying to do whatever you could to kind of reach safety and, and get out of there, but it wasn't very easy for you. And, and you talked a little bit about fate. And, and earlier you mentioned not having any control over the situations. Do you see that only in these very extreme examples? Or do you also see that in your everyday life that you don't really have much control over many things you do? Yeah, I think uh, I think I definitely see that in everyday life. I mean, uh, I think it's emphasized when you're in the mountains how small you really are and how unpredictable life can be. But uh, yeah, I think you see it in everyday life too, but you, it really is emphasized when you're in the mountains. So is this fate something that you've always believed in or is it just as a result of these really extreme instances? I would say uh, I've always sort of had that feeling, but uh, you, when you're put in those situations and you realize how minuscule you are in this world, uh, I think it's the feeling of things being out of your control, it makes me that much more aware of it, I guess mm-hmm. I would say. So if you had to wrap up this whole experience and boil it down to one lesson that you learned, do you have a lesson that you've learned as a result of this? Yeah, I would say that the the most important thing is to just be flexible in those situations. And I think uh, I learned in that situation that when things are out of your control like that, it's basically just try to keep yourself in as much control as possible. 
try to keep mentally uh, clear and, and try to just stay positive. I mean, being negative and not absorbing the situation and just kind of rolling with it can really have a bad effect. I think one of the reasons we were able to get out of that uh, situation where the farmers were striking against the government was was that we just kept a good attitude through it. We walked for probably 24, 25 miles on and off to get back to where we were trying to get to, so it was sort of a safe area. And uh, the whole time we just uh, tried to stay as, as, as many times as we uh, came to getting shot or, uh, or, or killed in some way, we, we kept a pretty positive attitude about it. Yeah, it was really interesting reading that story. And we'll uh, put that on our website, actually, with a link. So it was yeah. published in a, a magazine. And so it's just super interesting. There's a lot more detail in there. Uh, they tell the story a lot better than Ben and I try to describe <laughs> it. So definitely check that out uh, if you have some time, listeners. And then also to move to the next topic, uh, you being this very well-rounded outdoorsman, would you have one specific gear recommendation for our listeners? Well, you know, there's one company I've sort of become associated with in the last uh, few years that I've really, uh, really enjoy. And it's sort of this grassroots hydration pack company that I, I really use their product all the time in so many different circumstances. It's called Vest Pack. And what exactly is it? Basically a lightweight hydration system. It's like a pack for multiple sports that has different pockets and things that you can store thing. But unlike a traditional hydration pack where you, you put this big bulky thing on your back and, and carry sort of a backpack with you, this separates the hydration from the pack. The pack is in the front on your chest and the hydration is in the back. So makes it much more comfortable, much lighter. You can wear it under clothing very easily, and it carries you know enough to do a lot of different things. Huh. Yeah, just looking at the design of the vest pack, compared to other hydration systems, it seems like it's closer to your body. So during those freezing temperature days, your actual water will be heated by your body and not freeze. So that seems pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, you basically can wear it underneath a lot of clothing and it still feels very comfortable and doesn't really move around and it can stay warm and keep keep the water from freezing. I would probably put hot water in it to keep me warm. <laughs> yeah, well that works too. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't last for very long. It's like though. a hot water bottle. <laughs> put my morning coffee in it. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, there is sort of a mesh that uh, separates the hydration from your back. So actually if it's warm, it breathes also. It doesn't get like a standard pack where you you feel the sweat or whatever, the heat off of it. it. It has sort of a ventilation system that separates the hydration mm. back from your back. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, very nice. We'll put a link to that product on our website. So if any of the listeners want to check that out, very interesting and grassroots company. So yeah, to kind of wrap this whole thing up, we were talking a little before the interview and you have so much knowledge in this industry. And so we want to bring up one issue that you've had to deal with and something you see as becoming more of an issue in the future. Could you talk about the growth in extreme sports uh, over the last few years and how that's affecting your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, I can say it's in, in the last five years, I've seen an incredible growth in, in pretty much all extreme sports, but, you know, specifically backcountry skiing and out-of-bounds skiing. You know, I think there's some statistic that over year to year, the, the growth of, uh, Alpine touring equipment, mountaineering equipment has uh, almost doubled over the last five years wow. or something every year. Um, and basically, I think the reason that the sports are growing so much is that equipment is improving at an, you know, incredibly. I mean, you can get pretty much any kind of equipment you want now at a somewhat affordable price. 
uh, that you could never get before. So this doesn't sound like a problem to me yet. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, no, seriously, I'm not a backcountry skier. And to hear that there's growth in the sport and that things are becoming cheaper because there is more market competition, that doesn't sound like a problem yet. You're absolutely right. And most people would probably think that, that want to get into the sport. Like, okay, this is great. We're making more money. It's a great sport. Uh, more people can have access to it. More people can get involved. And that is true. But one thing you have to remember about uh, mountaineering, backcountry skiing, ski mountaineering, is that uh, it's a very dangerous endeavor. And when you when you start to load a lot more people into a smaller area or the same area, it becomes a much more dangerous sport. And I think that's that's the problem that we're having. I mean, certainly you can get out there and there's plenty of mountains around the world where you can go and be alone all you want. But in the most popular areas and even areas that are closer to towns and cities, this explosion of the amount of people in the backcountry certainly makes it a lot more dangerous. And so what's the real solution to this problem? What's something that can realistically be implemented to fix it? Well, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure uh, that this is going to be a fixable problem. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, it goes down the road of uh, just becoming more crowded. And I think probably the best way to solve it individually is to get out further, to think outside the box a little bit, to work a little harder, to get to to different areas, to spend more time finding new areas. But, you know, as far as uh, local areas, I think the best thing you can do is try to educate people as best as possible. So when they're out in the backcountry, it's a slightly safer place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what are some of the resources that you use either on safety or thinking outside the box with locations to go to? Well, you know, I've always been uh, really interested in reading maps and finding different areas where I think people might not be, maybe working a little harder. I've always been fine with spending a little extra time to get a little further out. But as far as education goes, you know, I personally don't do a whole lot of education for other other people except for people in, in my group or my area. But, you know, obviously avalanche courses are huge, um, even taking guiding courses or taking Uh, classes where you can be guided and and learn a lot about the backcountry is probably the best way to get into it. Unfortunately, with the new equipment, the better equipment, the better skis, even an intermediate skier or mountaineer can uh, get in way over their head just on on some false confidence, which is pretty easy to come by with the equipment nowadays. Yeah, definitely. And you think that there would be this huge gap in the market with all these technological advances in the equipment for more training programs for more events going on because there are so many more people going out there. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we'll see that in the next few years. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's definitely growing. You know, I mean, I definitely think guiding companies and especially avalanche awareness classes and avalanche classes are growing, but uh, really it should, I mean, I don't know if there's any way to ever do this, but it should almost be mandatory to have some kind of avalanche training before you you get into the backcountry, but obviously the backcountry is a wild place and anybody can go. And, and to be honest, uh, before I ever took any avalanche courses, I, uh, I was in the backcountry. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sometimes you got to have those close calls to really push you there, but maybe someday people won't need to have those to, to have that general <laughs> education, but yeah, it'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting topic. Thank you so much for coming on the show between your story, your career, all these different things we talked about. We're just so happy you came on and put any other resources we talked about on our website, mtnmeister.com. You can find it right at your Meister profile. Just search Jay Prentice. 
Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I'd like to just uh, say thank you, if you don't mind, to a few of my sponsors. Presta Butte Mountain Resort, Acclimate, Vestpack, of course, which we spoke about. Uh, Leaky, Fisher, Loki, Mountain Khakis, Romp Skis out of Presta Butte, Colorado. And uh, yeah, I think that covers it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Hello, Meister fans. Thank you so much for tuning in to Jay Prentice's episode. Ben, tell us what's going on with Instagram. Yeah, I think I'll tell you with a story. As some of the listeners may know, I used to compete in mogul skiing, and there were occasionally photographers shooting photos of me. And one time I went and looked at my photos after my mogul run, and my pants had actually come unbuttoned mid-daffy. Apparently the daffy had put a lot of pressure around the waistband of my ski pants. And not only did my pants come unbuttoned, but my jacket had also slipped up so my stomach was hanging out, and it just made for a really funny picture. And I would have loved to post that thing to Instagram, except it was 10 years ago. So, I guess what I'm saying with all of this is tag Mountain Meister in your Instagram photos. We want to see what you're up to. Also, Meister fans, join us tomorrow when we have Mike Closer on the show. He was one of the best adventure racers in the world. And if you don't know what that is, another reason to tune in. 